I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Minds at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 16, we read A Matter of Interpretation by Antonin Scalia from 1997. Antonin Scalia was born in 1936 in Trenton, New Jersey, the only child of an Italian immigrant father and an Italian-American mother. The family moved to New York City in 1939, where Scalia's father would become a professor of Romance Languages at Brooklyn College. After finishing at the top of his class at Xavier High School, Scalia attended Georgetown University for college, then Harvard Law School, earning his J.D. in 1960. That same year, he married Maureen McCarthy, with whom he would have nine children. After law school, Scalia worked at the Jones Day Law Firm for six years, but later said he always intended to teach. In 1967, he got the chance to do so when he was hired as a professor at the University of Virginia. He left academia briefly in 1971 to join the Nixon administration, working in administrative law and at the Office of Legal Counsel. He stayed on through the Ford administration, but left when Ford left office and then returned to teaching, this time at the University of Chicago. There he remained until 1982 when President Reagan appointed him to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. On the D.C. Circuit, Scalia became known as a clever, intelligent writer, conservative legal opinions. In 1986, Reagan appointed him to the Supreme Court. Scalia was confirmed by a unanimous vote in the Senate. On the High Court, Scalia became known for his intellectual rigor, flamboyant style, and eagerness to debate his liberal detractors. He became the leader of the Court's conservative justices, the most prominent advocate of a manner of constitutional interpretation called originalism, the idea that judges should look to the original public meaning of the words of the Constitution at the time they were written. He criticized the then popular notion of a living Constitution that evolved with changing times as merely an excuse for judges to impose their own ideological views. Scalia was known for filing separate opinions and dissents often and, not, and for not mincing words when he disagreed with the fellow justices' reasoning. At the same time, he was also personally friendly with some of the court's liberal justices, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Elena Kagan. Scalia served on the Supreme Court for almost 30 years until his sudden death in 2016 at the age of 79. Besides his many judicial opinions, he was also the co-author of four books, including his 1998 work, A Matter of Interpretation, Federal Courts and the Law, which we'll discuss today. In simple terms, Scalia in this book wants to push back against judicial activism, that is, judges making law from the bench. What do we mean by judicial activism? How do, how do judges create law? Well, that's what he kind of addresses here. Scalia begins his argument by explaining to us first how judges interpret the law. And for those listeners who attended law school, much of this discussion will ring very familiar, and I hope it's not too boring. We think that it would help to give our uh, non-lawyer listeners uh, a map of the judicial terrain and maybe describe some of the basics. So he starts with the common law. And for those listeners who didn't go to law school, this might be somewhat new to you. Originally in states, judges basically created the law because they didn't have statutes. There are very many statutes, and the legislature didn't, didn't pass laws to cover so many areas of the law. 
So the common law is foundational level of the body of unwritten laws based on legal precedents established by judges. And a precedent means if one judge makes it, makes a decision to sort of resolve a dispute. So you have two, two groups or two people who, who are arguing about something. Then the judge says, well, I think we should, there's no law. There's no, there's no legislation or statute. So the judge has to just kind of decide it. So the judge says, well, this person wins because of X, Y, Z reasoning. Well, the next judge, based on precedent, the next judge is going to have to follow that original precedent by and large. And that's how the common law, that's how common law was created. And so what's common law? Well, contracts, all contract law was originally common law. Some states now have codified it, turned it into statutes and legislation, but originally it was common law. Torts, torts would be like a slip and fall or product liability. You know, your car blows up. Well, that's a tort if you're going to sue the auto manufacturer property law too. And I don't know about you, Kyle, but when I, when I was in law school and first learned about the, the common law, my eyes were big. I, I almost couldn't believe like, wow, really? This is how law is created? Is you just have judges like pulling it out of their rear end and making decisions? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy because I mean, we're, we're sitting there when we were in law school in the early, early part of this 21st century, statutes are everywhere. Regulations are everywhere. You know, this, we're not governed by, you know, vague impressions from this opinion, that opinion. Typically we think, well, when there's a law, it's because Congress passed it, our state legislature passed it, city council passed it, you know, and, and you can look it up. But I guess, you know, this goes back to even before the colonies, this is how it was done in England. And I guess people just didn't have a lot of laws back then. And this is how they evolved. And when you had judges that were willing to stick to that tradition and to abide those precedents, it, at least it created a lot of what is sort of the same as statutory law because it, after enough time and these rulings were repeated and upheld repeatedly, people would be able to, it would be predictable the way a law is supposed to be. You could look at, well, if I breach the contract this way, I know I'll get sued and I'll lose because you know, that's the way it's been for a hundred years. All these rulings, you know, one after the other. So it, 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 it in a way, it sort of did the same thing as statutes, but then there was always that confusion when a new thing came up, and it's you know kind of it's almost like luck of the draw. What's a judge going to think? Where, which judge are we going to get? And that's that's kind of a crazy way to do law. Yeah, and uh, we, so in law school, you read through the cases. If you're learning about contracts or you're learning about torts, instead of reading the law, what we're doing is we're reading cases where judge takes a, a novel situation and, and has to make a decision on on who is liable and who's not or who's in, in breach of contract and what's what's the remedy. In other words, so there's a contract that's violated. What does the plaintiff get as a recompense for, for the, the violated contract or whatever? And, and the judges kind of decide that. And so the precedent is built up through these cases where it just it's not it's not a plain reading of XYZ, you know, if a contract is, is breached, then the remedy is XYZ. Instead, you know, you're reading through the, a judge's decision where it kind of meanders this way and that way say, well, there's this. And because of that, and you know, this fact was interesting and this, uh, because he did that, or they did this, then this person wins. And for the breach of contract, they get this, 
you just have uh, an entire body of law that's built up like that. And as you described, more than anything, particularly in business, what you want is predictability. So I think there's a Brandeis quote where he says it's more important. It's more important the law uh, get settled than that the law be written correctly. And that's basically what we have with the common law. Although there have been tweaks and like we said, many states have have actually passed, have legislatures that have passed these and turned it into law, uh, statutory law instead of common law. It, it requires a lot of uh, self-restraint among the judiciary. And that's, that's something we see less of all the time. Um, but I think it, it required judges to be conservative in the, not even in the right-wing, left-wing sense of that word, but just in the sense of doing things the way they've been done and upholding tradition, legal tradition in this case. So it it feels sort of like a, an era that we can only really think of as history, where judges would just not bring their own political views into things. It's like, well, look, the contract was breached this way, or somebody trespassed this way, and I can't just make up something new. I can't distinguish this case from all these different precedents that have come before it, so I have to uphold it. And, you know, that's, that's sort of what conservatives today typically do one of our judiciary just interpret the law mm-hmm. don't go off on wild goose chases trying to make it fit your idea of what's right and what's wrong because you know there already is law people have already decided what's right and what's wrong through that and you know if we need to change that that's something legislatures are supposed to do not not judges right. so it's definitely it's definitely a um it's not just we call it judicial activism but it's it's sort of just like judicial arrogance also they're sort of taking that legislative power into their own hands increasingly. Exactly. And, and this is the problem that Scalia has. And so again, why are we going down this, the rabbit hole of the common law is and explaining, well, because this added, this common law attitude where judges make the law and judges have authority to resolve issues. Scalia sees that, that common law attitude creeping into other aspects of law, into the interpretation of statutes and even more so in the interpretation of the Constitution, which we'll get to in just a minute. But after kind of explaining and walking us through common law and judicial interpretation, he moves to statutory interpretation. That means laws passed by a a state legislature or by Congress. So the written law as it's passed by uh, elected officials. And even even in that case, you know, most of the cases that, that get appealed and go to the Court of Appeals and they go to the Supreme Court, statutory interpretation or re, uh, regulations, rules that are promulgated, issued by federal agencies, there are sometimes ambiguous terms and judges need to use some discretion in interpreting that because ultimately somebody has to decide the meaning of a word. And I'll use an example that I dealt with in my career. There's a a standard in the Clean Air Act for what kind of power plant needs to be constructed, and it's it's known as MACT, M-A-C-T, Maximum Achievable Control Technology, and that's for the regulation of hazardous air pollutants. As as companies are trying to comply with this law, you know, there's a there's a question as to what is actually what is maximum achievable even mean. So I have to build this plant. I want to build a new power plant. And I have to meet these certain standards. And the law says it has to be maximum achievable. But what exactly do we mean by that? Is, is that sort of a theoretical level of maximum? Or is it 
what's currently available. Well, the statute is a little bit specific and says basically like if you're building a new plant then you have to build it as efficient and as clean as the cleanest, most efficient plant that exists. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Or, and if, uh, for those plants that already exist, they have to clean themselves up to the level of the top 12%, the law, the loss, the statute says top 12% of, of power plants. Okay. I, I guess I can follow that. Well, what the Obama administration did with Mac to say, well, what we think maximum achievable means is not a currently existing plant, you know, a single plant, but we're going to say this plant is super efficient when it comes to X, that plant is super efficient and clean when it comes to Y. And this other plant was, is, does really good as, as applies to Z. So we're going to pull that all together and call that a maximum achievable if by taking all three. And companies are like, well, wait a sec, we can't actually do all three. That's more theoretical. You know, they, they have that because they're doing X, they're doing this and that and the other. And the other plant, well, they're trying it a different way. And so they're, and the idea that we can pull them all together is more theoretical. That doesn't exist. We're not there. And the Obama administration says, well, you're, you're, you can figure it out. Right. It's not our problem. That's your problem. Right. Okay. So now that uh, obviously these companies, they go to court and say, to the judges like that's not what the statute says the statute says maximum achievable maximum achievable means whatever the best plant that exists now and so a judge has to decide well is the interpretation by the by the obama administration agency epa is that reasonable you know is is are they stretching the text too far and so this 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 is the activity of judges and so for scalia he wants you to basically look at it and we'll, we'll talk about this in just a second his his brand of textualism versus strict instructionism versus judicial restraint these are all sort of conservative approaches but they all what they all have in common is basically the idea of read the plain language of the text what is the plain language maximum achievable this says and the statute plainly says which, whichever single plant is the most efficient and cleanest that is the standard not creating this Franken plant, Frankenstein plant, where you're pulling all these things together. Just the, the idea that um, we should read the text of a law in its normal meaning as people understand things. You know, I, I, I read somebody else describe this as a point so obvious that it takes an advanced degree to obscure it. <laughs> because that's how we read everything, right? I mean, you don't, I mean, if you get instructions to put together some furniture from Ikea, you you're not looking for weird meanings in it. You're just trying to do what it says. I mean, that yeah. stuff's mostly pictures, so it's even harder. But, <laughs> you know, other things, uh, if you get a, if you're reading a book, if you're reading a recipe, if you're, you know, reading a, a sign on the street, you're, what you're doing is saying, well, you look at that and you say, I know what those words mean because people use them every day. Let's do that. Textualism, the idea, the idea that the text is what governs, that's, that seems really obvious <laughs> to most people because, of course, it does. What else would govern? Yeah. Scalia gets into that. Well, for one thing, sometimes the text is a little it's drafted sloppily or some parts contradict each other. So, Or sometimes people just want to achieve a result. It's not really what's in the text, but it's kind of close to it, like you're saying with the, you know, putting together different parts, different high functioning power plants and saying, well, that's, that's what they meant. So what became common and when we were in law school, this I, th I think was still kind of the prevailing way of interpreting statutes was to look at legislative history. Mm -hmm. And that is 
not just the words of the statute that were passed by Congress and signed by the president, but what they talked about in Congress while they were passing the law and what they talked about in committee and what the committee report says and all of these things, which at times can kind of contradict even the original wording of the statute, or even if it doesn't contradict it, it doesn't line up exactly. And then people will argue to the court, well, this is what they meant. Say, look, what's in the statute? That's, you know, that's fine. But look, you can tell because these two congressmen were talking about it, that this is what they really meant by it. This was their intent. So people talk about legislative intent in this way. And Scalia doesn't have much time for that for a lot of reasons. I mean, for one thing, divining people's intent is pretty well impossible. I mean, you don't know what somebody's thinking. You only know what they do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we have a law, we know what Congress did. They passed these words. Both houses passed it. The president signed it. That's what we know for sure is these, these words in this statute. When you, when you go into these other things, it's, you know, somebody giving a speech on the house floor. Well, who's there to hear it, right? I mean, if you ever see C-SPAN, it's not a packed house. Right. It's empty. It's, it's just one, one guy's opinion or one woman's opinion. And then you get into these committee reports and committee debates. So that's just one subset of Congress. And they might know more about the subject than most because it's their committee. But it's still, it's not something that the House agreed to or the Senate agreed to or the president agreed to. It's just, you know, what a few guys are talking about. And then as Scalia points out, the committee reports, they're often not even written by any of the members. They're written by committee staff who may be doing their best to summarize the debates that were there, but they're not, again, it's not law and Congress can't really delegate that mm-hmm. lawmaking ability to a report written by the staff of one committee of one house. Mm-hmm. When Scalia was writing this and when he first came to the Supreme court, he rejected legislative history altogether. And that was, he was like the only one at the time. Everybody else was saying that this was, this was okay. This was the way law should be interpreted. And that's sort of that common law approach of, you know, bring in thoughts from outside, not just the four corners of the document. Uh, uh, Scalia wanted to get back to the original idea of laws being laws, and that's it. He quotes Oliver Wendell Holmes from a, a, something he said in 1920, back when this textualism was more the norm. He said, only a day or two when counsel talked of the intention of the legislature, I was indiscreet enough to say, I don't care what their intention was. I only want to know what the words mean. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's Scalia's take too. Some 75 years after Holmes said that, he, he kind of comes back around to that original idea. Yeah, having uh, myself worked in Congress for a decade, I mean, I can say from personal experience, I think it's deeply problematic to look at legislative history. I mean, on the, on, from the outside looking in, it seems helpful. But the problem is, what exactly do we mean by, I mean, what legislative history, which legis- legislative intent, because you're talking about... You need 60 votes in the Senate and 218 in the House. I mean, that's a lot of different opinions. And uh, you have members, senators and uh, members of the House constantly competing with one another to sort of put out what the legislative intent was, what the legislative history is. They're producing it in order to sort of influence judges in the future. When when judges look over the statute, they want to, you know, provide background for their own views, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And the thing about what makes legislative history problematic is you really, there's something in there for everybody. You can, you can find what you're looking for. What Scalia is going to say is that just creates a pretext for judges to f- uh, p- pursue their own proclivities to sort of say, this is, this is how I think this, uh, this decision ought to come out. And so 
I'm going to look through the legislative history, consciously or unconsciously, and find what it is I need in order to reach my decision that I want to reach. Because when you're talking about few hundred people <laughs> and who all have different views, almost all of whom have not read the legislation and are only marginally familiar with the, the actual text itself, well, you're going to be able to find you know, all kinds of different views and it's going to make it easy to sort of make your argument as a judge to sort of say, oh, that's what the legislative in, uh, history was. That's the legislative intent mm. because, you know, so-and-so said it right here. And of course you have 10, you know, a hundred counterexamples, but so that's what makes it difficult. The only actual legislative intent that we have solid foundation is what was the vote? <laughs> what did this text look like when it was voted on? Because maybe even maybe even that text almost for sure everybody didn't agree on it but they agreed enough to vote on it to vote yes or to get it passed yeah and why people vote on things it's almost impossible and sometimes people vote on things for bizarre reasons like my favorite example of this uh the, the problem of legislative intent is the civil rights act of 1964 it was originally drawn up as as to make equal rights you know racially but a, a congressman from Virginia added you know, proposed an amendment that would also include equal rights for women. Mm -hmm. And it, it was not because he was a big feminist. It was because he thought it would make the bill so radical that moderates wouldn't be able to vote for it. Mm. So this is Howard Smith of Virginia voted for this, put this in there. And, uh, it turns out it didn't work the way you thought it would. It actually still, the bill gathered support and it passed, but, like, what, what could you say that that man's intent was? You know, I mean, if you were interpreting that provision of the Civil Rights Act, according to the intent of the legislator who wrote it, it, mm -hmm. would, it would be 100% at odds with what the text actually says. Yeah, that's a good example. It, it's, and I think that kind of, those sort of poison pill amendments do happen. And, you know, people, people propose things for reasons of their own. Maybe they want to make the other side vote on something that's a little inflammatory, make them you know, stand for this or for that, like how we're going to see a vote on the Green New Deal in the Senate because Mitch McConnell wants people to vote on it. Yes, Mitch exactly. McConnell doesn't want the Green New Deal. <laughs> he wants to make Democrats vote for it and then hang the more radical provisions of it around their necks. Yeah, intent here, th this is this is what Scalia says. We, want, we need to stick to what the law actually says because that's the only thing we know for sure. Yeah. So what we're really discussing here and what Scalia is really addressing is this question of how how to interpret ambiguous terms and are there any limits you know are there any limitations on on how a term can be interpreted because especially at the supreme court level there really is no after you get to the supreme court there there's no other body to appeal to and there's no universal law that requires judges to rule one way or the other basically it's up to their own discretion what he's trying to do here with his idea of textualism is create some limit you know because let's say for example freedom of speech what does speech mean does speech mean we're only words coming out of your mouth does it mean words that are written does it mean actions that have meaning you know does it do we take the, the symbolism that that a human creates and call and call that speech so these are these are questions that are not clear-cut judges have to make a decision like, well, what does, what does speech even mean? You know, one judge could say, well, I think speech is just words out of your mouth. So if it's written, that doesn't count. Or you have 
another judge, uh, Hugo Black, who said, who took a very strict reading of the text. The Constitution says Congress shall make no law regarding the freedom of speech. So he's like, it's not even okay to create a law that says no yelling fire in a crowded theater or, you know, threatening someone saying, I'm going to kill you because that's free speech. So we can't make a law. And many of us would say, well, I don't think that's okay. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want somebody in a theater yelling fire when there's no fire and creating all this havoc. And I certainly don't want somebody threatening me and say they're going to kill me or kill my children and call that free speech. So there is some, we do need to create some barriers around what speech is, but judges, it's up to them to sort of decide speech means this and no further. But others might say, well, why only that far? Let's go this far. And others might say, oh, let's just wake, make it wide open and go, you know, as far as we can go. And what he's, what Scalia is trying to do is say, no, there has to be a limiting principle. We can't just say uh, a word means anything that, uh, that, that dog means, means horse. You know, it's, it's, we got, we got to say, well, a dog is this sort of creature and it has some level of parameters around it. Once you reach, you know, this level, that's no longer a horse. It's not that species or it's no longer a dog and it's definitely not a horse. And, and so with textualism, he's trying to create a principle and laying it down and saying, this, this is how we should do it. And for, for textualism, he says, words have a limited range of meaning and no meaning that goes beyond that range is permissible. So he's, what he's saying is like, look at the text. Sometimes it's ambiguous, but you need to look at the text as written. We're not looking at legislative history. We're not, you know, pulling things out of our rear end. We're just saying, what could it reasonably mean? Contrast that with some philosophies, mostly on the liberal side, who believe that the, that, that statutes or, or constitutional law should be, should be read much more generously. So here's a quote from uh, judge, a liberal judge, uh, Guido Calabresi. Because a statute is hard to revise once it is passed, grant to courts the authority to determine whether a statute is obsolete. At times, this doctrine would approach granting to courts the authority to treat statutes as if they were no more and no less than part of the common law. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, if we, if we come across, if judges come across a statute, that is a law passed by Congress that we think is a little obsolete and kind of passe, you know what we should be able to do? We should be able to say, uh, you know what, that's passe, that's obsolete. So we're no longer going to follow that text. Instead, we're going to take that common law attitude and sort of approach it as, well, we're going to stretch it this way and we're going to create new precedent, uh, even though the text of the law says otherwise. And here, here's another quote from uh, this liberal law professor, William Eskridge. It is proper for the judge who applies a statute to consider not only what the statute means abstractly, or even on the basis of legislative history, but also what it ought to mean in terms of the needs and goals of our present day society. Now, this comes back to a, a conversation that you and I have had through multiple books. Who gets to decide what ought is? Who gets to decide, you know, when we're talking about what society ought to be or what the language of the Constitution ought to mean or the language of a statute passed by Congress ought to mean? Who gets to decide that? Yeah, and that's, I think that's Scalia's point is that this is a very anti democratic idea. You know, I mean, we. This is this is ruled by unelected kings, you know, 
they don't call themselves kings. They don't wear crowns, but they've got black robes and and they they sit up on the bench and say, well, "This ought to be this way. This ought to be this way." It's a kind of a crazy way for people who still think we're a republic to allow ourselves to be governed. And you know, it happens on the right too. I mean, that they, there was a case a few years ago in Shelby County where the uh, the conservative justices decided that a certain statute was made sense at the time, but doesn't make sense anymore. So, I mean, it can happen on the right. It's more common on the left, but it's mm-hmm. um, it's the idea that the judge knows better than the legislature. And that's that's a tempting idea for a judge, right? I mean, because these are educated people. They're, they're very smart, have accomplished careers. It's easy to say, look, I don't know what Congress was doing here, but that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We know what's going on. We're not influenced by campaigns and reelections. We were wise. And they might be wise, but that's not really... We're not ruled by the wise. We're ruled by the people. Right. Let's, <laughs> For let's better have or worse. Con- right. Exactly. Let's have a concrete example here. The The Supreme Court a few years back ruled on Obamacare, uh, uh, Affordable Care Act, the viability of the Affordable Care Act, particularly as it related to the uh, individual mandate, re- required all Americans to buy health insurance. And it gets to the Supreme Court. And the question is, is it is it an unconstitutional overreach into in this case was the the commerce clause uh, was it an overreach did congress have that authority to create a law that required an individual mandate the way that the court led by chief justice roberts and roberts is the one who wrote the decision instead of answering that question they answered a different question and he said instead of saying like does this violate the Con- commerce clause or not because the law was written to appeal to the Commerce Clause. It worked within the Commerce Clause. And the question is, does it violate the Commerce Clause or not? And his ruling was, yeah, it does, but this isn't a Commerce Clause case. This is a tax case. This is a question of whether it was a tax or not. Okay, now, for anybody who followed this even remotely closely, everybody knew that uh, the Obama administration and, and the Democratic Congress very purposefully and willfully wrote the law to uh, as not a tax because he wanted to say and, and Obama did say over and over again hey this is not a tax look at look at the look at the language of the of the law there's no tax here at all so the individual mandate it's not a tax we're using it under the commerce clause and so what justice roberts and the the other liber- and the liberal justices that joined him basically what they were doing is trying to solve a problem and going back to this William Eskridge, this liberal law professor who says what it ought, what the language ought to mean in terms of the needs and goals of our present day society. I mean, that's exactly what Justice Roberts did. It's like, well, based on the objectives and the goals of our present day society, hey, if 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 I declare this law uncons- or, yeah, unconstitutional, that's going to wreak some serious havoc. It's going to create chaos. So instead, let's just solve this problem. We'll find a way to solve it, which is calling it a tax when it was not a tax and everybody in the world the text wasn't a tax and even if you looked at legislative history you would know immediately this was not a tax Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you listen to the president over and over again this is not a tax and the language the plain language was clear that it wasn't but you're trying to find ways to solve a problem or get to a solution that you want to get to yeah and let me let me tell you as somebody who used to practice tax law even if it were a tax justice roberts really uh fouled up about 200 years of tax jurisprudence by 
blurring the line between direct tax and indirect tax. And that, that's too obscure to get into now, but it was a, it was a mess even if it were a tax. <laughs> but this is this point that they were trying to solve a problem is I think it's one Scalia gets into a lot and it's not everything good is constitutional and not everything bad is unconstitutional. You know, the constitution is not, it's not your Bible. It's not, you know, a moral code. It's a, a series of rules and regulations about how this country is governed. And you can say something's wrong, but constitutional. And maybe that means you want to change the constitution. That's okay. But you have to do it the, the right way. And mm-hmm. you can, you can say something is good, but the constitution doesn't require it or doesn't protect it or outright bans it. And again, that might make you want to change the document, but you can't just ignore the document. I had a, I had a professor for um, civil procedure who told us, he, he clerked on the Supreme Court and he told us that about once a week too. But he, <laughs> he always said um, that the, the point of the Supreme Court is not to do justice in individual cases. It's to resolve circuit splits. Mm, yeah. So basically it's, it's to make sure that the law of the United States is uniform. Too often it gets into this idea that they're the, they're the ones who are out to do justice. They're going to, they're going to save us from ourselves in different ways. They're going to make things work. But none of these is what an appeals court is meant to do. They're meant to say what the law is. Mm-hmm. That's it. Not whether the law is good, not whether the law is bad, just what it is. Yeah. And, and that's the argument that Scalia makes. But in contrast, many of our listeners have probably heard this term. The other side will say, well, no, the Constitution isn't just a text. It's living. It's a living Constitution. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, basically, like, if we want to find if we want to find the good, or if we we want we think a decision is right or good or is going to promote social justice, then that's what the Constitution says. Never mind what the text says itself. And as Scalia says, we will smuggle these new rights in if all else fails under the due process clause. And what he's really alluding to there is the right to abortion. You know, how, how do we get to a right to an abortion when nowhere in the Constitution does it even remotely sniff that idea of abortion at all? Well, mm-hmm. it's because through this I, this philosophy of sort of living Constitution, you have, and, and this attitude of this common law judge attitude, well, you have a, an original case where, where a Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court says, well, because of you know, the fourth amendment and the first amendment and the 14th amendment, we're going to pull that all together and say, they all sort of imply that Americans have a right to privacy. Okay. So a lot of us would say, well, I, I think we do have a right to privacy, but you know, maybe that should be statutory. Maybe Congress should pass that law and not have it in, uh, say it's in the constitution, but okay, well, maybe you can stretch it that far and say there's a, a right to privacy, even though it doesn't actually exist in the constitution well then that create that just like the common law that creates a a new precedent so that a future uh, supreme court comes around and says hey now that we have this right of privacy i think privacy also applies to things you do with your body so that means abortion now is is a a a right a constitutional right that's guaranteed to everyone and you're kind of like Wow, that was the first one I, I was uncomfortable with because it was a little bit of a stretch. This is just tearing it to pieces and just flying clear off the reservation. And that's what happens in the idea of a, of a living constitution. Once you start moving away from the text, what limits do we have? What's going to stop you? What can pull you back? What can pull a judge back? Well, the answer is actually nothing. 
So Scalia says, you know, judicial restraint, textualism, man, other conservatives say strict constructionism, meaning like just what does the text say, you know, and okay, you can maybe fudge it on around the edges if you have to, because sometimes it's ambiguous enough that, you know, you have to put some of your judgment in there. But that's, that's a far cry from saying there's this now this new right of privacy and oh by the way now that we have privacy now there's this new guaranteed right of abortion yeah and you um to get back to the com- the problem of common law too is it you know it, this is worse than a common law approach for statutes although i mean it's a similar process but at least with the common law in you know if you're interpreting a statute wrongly the legislature can fix it mm-hmm. pretty easily right you, know, that, yeah, you had that point. quote from calabrese saying it's hard to fix a statute once it's passed. Well, if that's hard, imagine fixing the constitution once the courts fouled it up Yeah, because there's impossible. no, there's no appeal from that. There's no, you know, you can, it can be done. Um, I mean, they passed the 16th amendment basically in response to a Supreme court opinion. You know, when they, in 1895, the Supreme court said that income taxes were unconstitutional and then they passed an amendment to allow income taxes, but it took 24, 25 years and, you know, in the meantime, you know, a lot of people thought that that opinion was wrong. I, I think it was right, but it was, you know, I mean, if, if you, if you get a wrong opinion on a, on a constitutional matter, it's not, a, there's no quick fix. Compare that to um, the Ledbetter case a few years ago, which was about uh, em- employment law suits and uh, sex discrimination in employment. And it was a pretty narrow statutory issue about, you know, statute of limitations and when it starts, when it ends. There's a 5-4 decision and it became a big stink in the political campaign in, I think, 2008. But the, so then the next Congress that came in fixed the law. They, the Supreme Court said it meant one thing and they said, no, that's not what it means. So they <laughs> clarified the law yeah. and that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. it was easy to fix because it was... You know, this was a, a pretty narrow statutory point, and Congress can fix statutes when it gets around to it. And in this, it was because it, you know, fed into women's rights and you know equality. It actually became kind of a hot issue, so Congress did something about it for once. But you know, that's that's easy. If, imagine if that case had been decided on constitutional grounds, and they said, "Well, the Fourteenth Amendment says this." Oh, okay. Well, are we going to fix that? Maybe. I mean, it, it can be amended, but it's got, you know, it takes a pretty big supermajority. The people have to really want it, you know, not just in one party, not just in one section of the country, but a lot of people have to want it. So, you know, this Scalia's approach is even more important when you're deciding something on constitutional grounds, because if you get it wrong, it's near impossible to fix. Absolutely. And as a practical matter, Getting a constitutional amendment passed is pretty much not going to happen. So, what's the what's the practical method for for overturning it? Well, you you just have to pick different judges, right? And so now all of a sudden this becomes the the political battle royale, and which we have is what I call the judicial wars, and we just saw this with Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court uh, nominee. You know, it becomes so much more crucial that you that the presidents and Congress look for judges who agree with them on what the quote unquote evolving standards have evolved to, you know, sort of like we need to pick judges who are not going to fly off the reservation and create new laws. And we also need to maybe pick some judges who are going to curtail this, who are going to pull it back. You know, do do you think that we would have a, a private right of 
of gun ownership if it wasn't for the five justice conservative justices on the court. I promise you no, because the other four said there's no private right. There's only a right for militias. That is the U.S. military to carry weapons. So all of a sudden, you know, what, what should be a boring sort of staid area, a branch of government, the judicial branch, has become the most hotly contested because it's the it's the personalities and the judgment of the judges that all of a sudden matter because we know we're not going to pass a constitutional amendment it's just so impossible i mean what they one of the federalist papers called the judiciary the least dangerous branch because it was yeah. supposed to be sort of yeah you know it's important it's it's important that it's separate from the other branches and an independent judiciary is good but it wasn't meant to be the center of action was supposed to be the house of representatives and then to some extent the senate and the presidency I mean, it used, in the 19th century, it was hard to get people to join the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And people would go on there for a few years, and then they'd quit and go into private practice. And there was one judge who quit to join the state Supreme Court <laughs> yeah. in the in the early uh, 1800s because it wasn't a great job. It was boring. There weren't that many cases because there weren't that many federal laws. And, you know, they weren't doing much. They were just interpreting, and it didn't pay that well. So they said, you know, it, it was hard to get guys. Now. I mean, what law professor or lower court judge wouldn't, you know, crawl over his own grandmother to get on the Supreme Court? Because yeah, it's a absolutely. powerful thing now. It's like it's like all the people running for president who have no business running for president because why not take a shot? You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very powerful job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and you could do that for good reasons or for bad, but it's 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 made this weird concentration of power in a part of the government that no one ever intended to be powerful Mm -hmm. all right do you have any additional closing thoughts for scalia well um just some of my thoughts in reading this to take me back because i haven't thought about legislative history in a while and that's that's the legacy of scalia is that judges like him followed him onto the court and he really changed the way people look at laws he stood in you know, he stood athwart legislative history and yelled, stop. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, that's really, I mean, beyond just his vote on the Supreme Court, beyond his opinions, there's, he changed the culture of appellate law in America. He, he makes it so that we don't even, I mean, originalism was a minority view in his day. It was, it was an old idea, but it was also a new idea because it had fallen so far out of fashion that it had to be remade and uh, sort of redressed in philosophical undertaking. And it his his impact is enormous. So, I mean, it's it's good to read this book because it, here's when he's still fighting for the cause that eventually, I won't say triumphed because there are still a lot of people who are living constitutionalists, but I'd say the federal judiciary has more originalists now than at any point in our lives. And that, that's credit to Scalia. Yeah. Yes, he, Scalia was an absolute titan among giants, among men, and a huge loss to the court when, when he passed away recently. I remember reading his decisions throughout law school and just jumping up and cheering and saying, oh, yeah, that is absolutely right. And to the point that at my, at my law school, obviously, there's not a lot of conservative people. The, my constitutional law professor started referring to every Scalia and Rehnquist decision as Corey's view, you know, so Corey's <laughs> view on this would be X, Y, and Z. <laughs> like, 
you're darn right that's quite you <laughs> um, yeah and uh and he is he's deeply missed and for me if if you really want to get my my conservative uh, juices flowing let's talk legal uh, th- judicial thought and judicial activism because for me like this is where the rubber meets the road if i wasn't conservative or republican for any other reason it would be for this because i think it matters a lot and i it, it just deeply offends me this uh, the idea of a living constitution this idea that we can just go any direction we want and create a lot of thin air um, so anyway thank god for antonin scalia yep so this was our 16th episode and it marks the end of our season one of our exploration exploration so next time stay tuned for a review of our progress and the start of season two and probably uh, some different books but a lot of the, the same discussion and listeners do us a favor please send us over twitter or facebook send us your thoughts like what do you think we're doing good what do you wish we would do differently you could really use your feedback we're having fun and we hope that uh, that you enjoy but if, uh, if there are ways that we can improve or ways that you think would make this more entertaining or more fun please let us know and and we'll try to move in those directions So, all right, hopefully catch us next time. Thanks.